All right, if we could start making our way back to our seats. And I'm going to ask uh, Angie if she'll come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he is not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple salt is good but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile it is thrown away he who has ears let him hear okay let's go to the lord in prayer again Father God, again, we thank you for uh, this time. God, we thank you for a chance to to come and worship together. God, we thank you for the way that you are working uh, throughout our community and throughout our county uh, on this uh, Lord's Day. God, we ask that you would bless uh, the gospel-preaching, Christ-centered churches of our community. Um, God, that they would reach out with uh, love and kindness. God, that they would reach out with truth um, and accountability to a community that desperately needs to hear um, the gospel. God, they do not need a, a uh, got a false religion. God, they do not need um, a, a simple morality, but they need to know uh, your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. They need to know um, the good and gracious saving message uh, of the gospel. God, we ask that you would do that, that you would reach down in our to, to our community, that you would use the um, all of these churches, God, um, that they would be centers of gospel ministry um, and that you would bring revival. Um, God, that in a time where we continue to to hear and to fear um, the decline of of your truth uh, in, in our community, in our country, God, we ask that you would do a mighty work um, amongst us uh, in our time um, and that we would see many come to Jesus Christ and be discipled in the faith uh, and live faithful lives. Father, as we open up your word, we ask that your spirit would shine a light on it, that your spirit would shine a light on our hearts. God, that the spirit would would mediate um, this, this passage to our minds and hearts, that we would understand it rightly. 
God, that we would apply it um, to our lives. God, that we would heed the warnings that we see here and that we would, in doing that, live differently. God, that we would recognize your kindness and your character in this passage, God, and that we would live according to it. God, we are asking this that this um, passage would would do whatever work um, that you have for it today. God, we cannot do that on our own. We cannot rightly understand or apply um, or faithfully live out uh, any of these things without your spirit working in us. And so we thank you for his presence and ask for his power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... um, so we've been talking in our, our church history class um, about the the we just kind of hit the era where uh, Constantine comes to the the throne of of the Roman Empire, and one of the things we talk about is as Christianity uh, becomes no longer a a persecuted uh, and marginalized faith within the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world, and as it sort of becomes the ascendant. Uh, status quo, right, where, where the emperor and, and any number of officials are, are Christians, where the church and its leadership are given special place. Uh, historians have noted that something happened during that, right? That there was a, uh, there were good things and there were bad things that, that came out of that. But one of the things that we notice at that shift is a rise in the monastic movement. Because basically what happens is a whole generation of people go, and what does it mean to be a Christian when Christians are living in pomp, when Christians are living in privilege, when Christians are living in a situation where they are the ones who are calling the shots and making the decisions? What happened to the simple, persecuted, pilgrim faith that they had known since the time of the apostles all the way for the last several hundred years, right? And so one answer to that question um, was that many people began to say, you know what, the, the, the best way for us to continue to live as faithful Christians is to pull away from this society, to live lives of faith and prayer and simplicity in, in smaller communities away from the world um, and, and um, in, engage with God and, and the world in those ways. Okay. Now, so here's the deal. This passage is kind of asking some of those similar questions on the big scale. They're asking these kind of questions. I mean, what is the cost of discipleship? All right? There's a famous book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. Most of it is, is basically a, a, a commentary on, on the Sermon on the Mount. But it's asking that same question. What should discipleship cost us? And I'm going to tell you that in this passage, I think he's asking that very question. And there's a simple formula that we can, that we can follow. We can kind of break down through this passage. And here's the, here's the formula. What discipleship costs us? Nothing comes before Christ plus anything may come after Christ equals. So you should consider the cost parentheses lest you be rendered useless. So let me say that again. Nothing comes before Christ. Anything may end up coming after Christ, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. So you should consider the cost, lest you are rendered useless in the kingdom. So let's start there at the beginning. Nothing, the cost of discipleship means nothing comes before Christ. So verse 25. Now, 
great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? Now, that's a very strong statement. And, and, and the reality is, 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 is it kind of hits us weird too, because we know when we read the scriptures, we have real commanded appropriate responsibilities actually to all of those groups of people you just listed, right? It seems strange for, to, to say that we're supposed to hate those people because the Ten Commandments tells us that we're, we, we are demanded, it's demanded of us to honor our father and mother. The Bible tells us that the man who does not provide for his own family, that is his wife and children, as well as any extended family that comes under his care, if he doesn't provide for them, he is worse than an unbeliever. We come across any number of passages in in the Psalms and in the Proverbs about the blessings of the friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? Particularly, we see that in the wisdom literature. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that phrase to say, you must hate your father and mother, brother and sister, wife and children? It is to say that nothing can come before our relationship with Christ and obedience to him. Hate there is used figuratively, okay? It is used in comparison to how much we are to love and obey Christ. So again, it's just to say this, we can hold nothing back. From Jesus Christ. We can put nothing before him. No relationship, no matter how close, no matter how foundational, no matter how central, no relationship can trump our relationship with Jesus. We've already heard the story previously in Luke where, where the man comes and he says, just let me go and bury my father first. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the dead bury the dead. You've got new responsibilities now. I have to be the center. I have to be first in your life. More than even um, any kind of relationship, even more than that, our own lives are beholden to Christ. We can't even hold back our own survival from Christ. Christ supersedes that. And no aspect of my life can be held back from Christ. My hurts and my grudges... I don't get to hold them over and say, well, those come before Christ. My sexuality, my relationships, you don't get to say, well, I get to hold those things first and then Jesus can come after that. My career or my ambitions don't come before Christ. My safety, my comfort, they don't come before Christ. All of that is laid on the altar. The scriptures talk about the fact that we are living sacrifices, right? We put all of that on the altar of Jesus Christ. We were talking in, in men's group a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the vaccination stuff, and we were talking about the potential order by Biden to say that everybody, you know, mandating the, the vaccine and stuff, and we had a couple of guys who were current or former military there, and we said, uh, you know, what does the military say about this, right? And they basically said, uh, the military doesn't care what you think about any of these things, right? The military tells you to do something and you do it. Uh, You sign yourself away at the beginning of the process in the military. It doesn't worry about your plans or your principles particularly or your expectations. All of that is irrelevant to them. 
the military and their decisions supersede everything else that you have or think or want to do. Because the reality is, is when you sign on that dotted line, you are for the, the service of your, your term of service, or as I've discovered from talking to military people, sometimes even longer, right? Um, you belong to them. You belong to the military, okay? That is an earthly institution. How much more should it be true of Jesus Christ that everything belongs to him, that his word sits above everything in our lives, every relationship, every intention? Nothing comes before Christ. That's the first cost of discipleship. The second cost is this, and it's in verse 27. Anything may come after this. Once you are in Christ, anything may come after. That's the cost. So what does he say in verse 27? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That language of bearing a cross and coming after, we've already hit it in Luke before, but it means embracing your own death. It means following Jesus wherever he leads, no matter where he leads, no matter what it potentially could cost. And in fact, we should expect the worst at a certain level. We should expect that Following Christ will cost us our lives and everything. We should expect that. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't always, at least in a way. And I want, to, I want you to think about this from two sides, okay? Because on one side, just because anything can happen after we become a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that everything will happen. These things are for sure. So, for example... The Bible commands us to pray, in First Timothy, it calls us to pray for our leaders. And it tells us to pray for our leaders for a specific purpose, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Okay? So that means if we pray that prayer and God answers it, what does that mean for your life? Well, if he answers it, you're going to live a life of peace and quiet, of godliness and dignity, and so your life may not end up being a life of suffering and persecution for the faith, okay? That may be the case. And so when we talk about the fact that we have to take up our cross and anything may come, it doesn't mean necessarily that those things will come. But from another angle, here's the reality. We all must take up our cross and always do. All right? It's not a situation where we say, oh, well, I'm going to take up my cross and embrace death if it may come. There is an aspect of it where it is always the case for the Christian that taking up your cross means embracing death. Going back again to, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to his book, The Cost of Discipleship. This is one of my favorite passages from it. Um, I went back and we did a study on it years ago. I, when we do a book study, I take the book and I put the, the date of when the book study was. And so we did a college study on this like 10 years ago. But, and just the book was marked up, but this was one of those passages that I had highlighted. And it says this. Bonhoeffer says, the cross is laid on every Christian. 
The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon attachments to the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end at the otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It meets you at the beginning of our communion with Christ. That's a great line, right? The cross is not something that we might one day have to endure, like we just said a second ago, it could come, right? He says the way we're talking about it now, the cross is something that meets us at the beginning. The cross is something that when Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, he bids him come and die. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the Christian life is a life of renunciation. It is a life of abandoning the attachments to the world. It's acknowledging that we are wanderers here, that we are pilgrims in this world, that this place is not our home, that we are just passing through here. And therefore, it doesn't make any sense to get too attached to the things of this world because this is not where we're staying. We are going to move on beyond this place to the home that God has prepared for us in eternity. And the reality is, is that just as nothing can come before Christ, we make no demands on Christ and we temper all our expectations for how life is going to go after Christ. So again, just like that passage that we were looking at in, in Isaiah, when we come to Christ, We come without money and without cost. We come demanding nothing and we come not trying to pay for, trying to earn something. Becoming a Christian and following Jesus doesn't mean everything will go well with your life because you can't demand that of Jesus. You can't say, well, cool, Jesus, I'm going to get saved and be one of your disciples as long as you make sure everything goes right in my life, but it never works that way. And you shouldn't expect it to. It doesn't mean that your spouse won't cheat on you. It doesn't mean you won't get cancer. It doesn't mean you won't have a miscarriage. It doesn't mean that loved ones won't die unexpectedly. It doesn't mean that you won't lose friends and families and jobs and position and acceptance for the cause of Christ. The cost of following Jesus could be anything. And Jesus is telling us, you should know that ahead of time. And that's exactly what the next place, this next section in verse 28 that he's talking about. And it's something that we should take to heart when we are telling other people the gospel, but we don't. And by we, I mean I don't either, oftentimes. Look what he says in verse 28. There's two illustrations. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, wherever, uh, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So here's the deal, and I think this is the case. So, so most of you guys know that I went to Auburn for, for my undergrad. Um, what you may not know is that I graduated in marketing, okay, um, which was weird. Um, it's not what I would have chosen to mar- uh, graduate in. At the, after the fact, I would have picked something else, but that's what I ended up having the most credits in, and so that was just the way to get out of there quickest, okay? But there's a term in marketing. There's this term called soft selling, okay, in advertising or in marketing or sales, and basically what a soft sell is, is it's an approach to, to selling or advertising where the language is subtle, where you use non-aggressive kind of techniques because you, you're, you're, the design of that, that pitch is to avoid angering a person, um, avoid pushing them away in some way. You want those potential customers to feel at ease um, so that they'll receive the or buy into the thing that you're trying to sell them. Okay, so maybe it's always been this way, uh, and or or at least where Christianity was a was a was a commonly accepted element of society. But man, Christians soft sell the gospel a lot. Okay, we soft sell the gospel all the time. Again, we've touched on in this history class that we're doing. Um, we've noticed this pattern. At the, at the, in the early years of the church is that particularly when the church was going through times of, of intense persecution or elevated persecution, there tends to be a long process of catechesis, catechism, training up of people in the faith before you officially allow them to be members of the church, before the, the usually that would be in, in the symbols of baptism and taking the Lord's Supper for the first time. You didn't just let anybody do that, okay? So we've talked about that there are in some places in, in the ancient world that there were, you had to basically be in training in the church for a year before they would accept you as a member. Some places it was like three years before they would do that. Now why? Not, I'm not saying that's good or bad or necessary or whatever. I'm saying this. Why? Because in those times of heavy persecution, they recognize that if we're going to tell people about the gospel, they need to understand, A, what we believe, and B, what the cost of following this thing may be. It makes sense that in in a time of persecution, that, that need would be elevated, right? It also makes sense that when everything is going good and there's not much cost to following Christ in a lot of ways, that we would sort of start slacking on catechism, right? Instead, we would just sort of say, man, let's just get people in here, right? Because, because why not? But here's the deal. People ought to know what it costs and consider the costs. We don't tell people the cost oftentimes of following Jesus. Why? Because we want people to get saved, right? We want to see the ministry prosper. We want to see the fruit of the ministry um come to fruition. We want to see the church grow. We want, we don't want to be a hindrance to people, right? If somebody's ready to get saved, man, we want, we want that to happen. But here's the thing. And, 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 and again, it's certainly not all doom and gloom because God does make us lots of promises in the Bible. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's a promise. I will give you rest. 
That's a promise. I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That's a promise. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am, you may also be. That's a promise. God makes lots of promises to us, but he doesn't promise us everything. And so we should be clear about those things. When we are talking to somebody about the gospel, we should say, here's what is true and here's what is not promised. Here's what God has said and here's what he hasn't said. He doesn't promise us everything, and we shouldn't hide that fact. Because when we do hide it, you know what the, the, the what happens? What happens down the road is when people realize the cost, thinking back to the parable of the four soils, there's that first soil, right? The seed that goes into the ground, and it sprouts up quickly. Seems like there's going to be growth. And then what happens as soon as the sun of persecution comes out, that plant quickly withers and dies because it didn't have any root. That's what we're seeing in this passage. This man who has not counted the cost, he has begun this work, either of the tower or the fighting in this battle. And what are the outcomes? The outcomes are mockery and compromise. So for the man building the tower, when he realizes he's not willing or not able to finish the tower, what happens is the community looks to him and mocks him. And guess what? We see that all the time in Christianity too. We see somebody who is trusted in Christ, believed in Jesus, come into the church and into the faith, and then when things get hard, they walk away, and it is a blot on the church, and it is a blot on that person. And the world looks on and says, yeah, that's what we always thought. It's all just nonsense. That um, shuffled off as soon as things get difficult. Or maybe it comes to compromise, Right? A king sending his army out to battle doesn't go out to sue for peace, okay? An army going out to battle goes out to what? It goes out to win a battle. But when you don't count the cost, then what ends up happening is you say, all right, I got to figure out a way to survive in this situation. So I'm going to make some compromises. I'm going to talk to this person. He's going to talk to me. And we're going to figure out a way where we don't all, I don't get killed in this situation. And so there's compromise that happens there. And that, and that, that's the same deal. When we don't count the cost and we get down the road a little bit, then we start saying, well, I'm not really in, I'm not all in on this discipleship thing. Um, I'm going to have to make some compromises if I'm going to try to continue to be in the church in some way. Neither of those things, mockery or compromise, neither of those things are what Christ has called his followers to. So then what's the deal? Well, if we don't count the cost, then we are going to find ourselves in a position where we are useless in the kingdom of God. And that's what I think that closing illustration is about salt losing its saltiness in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, it's interesting because that little phrase, that's the only place in the Bible that it translates it lost its taste. You see it other places. This is the only one because it seems like a literal translation doesn't make a lot of sense. The literal translation area is, Salt is good, but if salt has become foolish, that's the literal translation. But here they're like, well, that doesn't make much sense. They must be talking about salt losing its saltiness, which is why the illustration gets a little weird because you're like, what is it? How does salt lose its saltiness? That doesn't really make any salt can't lose its saltiness. Salt is an element, right? It, it's just salt. Saltiness is a property of salt. You can't lose your saltiness. What is it talking about? There is actually a way that salt 
could lose its saltiness in a way. And that is if that salt is diluted. If you've got some salt sitting there and it's 10% salt and 20% gypsum and 30% sand and 20% quartz or something like that, when you taste that salt, you're going to go, man, this salt doesn't taste very salty. It looks like salt, but it doesn't have a whole lot of the nature of saltiness in it. What we find is that the way salt loses its saltiness is by becoming diluted. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing us to in this whole parable, right? Your faith, your discipleship, the cost of your discipleship can be diluted. If you start putting other things before Jesus, your discipleship will be diluted. If you start making demands of Jesus after you become a disciple and saying, well, I will only follow you if... I will only do the, well, if you're not going to do this for me, Jesus, then I'm going to have to make some compromises on this whole discipleship thing. When we do that, we dilute the gospel in our lives and our, and, and discipleship in its nature. Our devotion to Christ is our saltiness. His preeminence in our life is our saltiness. And if we allow any of these things to take precedent over Jesus, then that saltiness diminishes. And then just as it said, what good is salt that doesn't taste salty? What good is salt if it no longer has the characteristics of salt? Well, it's really only good for one thing. It's to be thrown away because it has no function. And again, Jesus closes this passage and he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He always tells us that when he's saying something, it's like, you know what? I'm not maybe, I'm being a little bit cryptic here, right? Being a little bit symbolic, but I'm doing that so that you'll pause and you'll think about the nature of these things and think about what I'm really asking of you in these situations. God wants us to be useful for his kingdom. But that, to, for us to do that, it is necessary that we count the cost of following Jesus. And so the reality is, is I think I look around and I go, you know what? Most of us in here are followers of Jesus Christ. We've already made those commitments. But the reality is, is that every single one of us has some cross work to do probably in our lives still. We have ways that we need to detach ourselves from the world. Okay, And that is not to say that we're supposed to do what the monks in the third century did. We don't move out to the desert, and we don't get into a hole. We don't grow our beard out and wrap it around our bodies, you know, and, and, and just live and eat bugs. That's not what the Bible is calling us to do. It doesn't call us to hate the world and then not enjoy any of the things in the world or whatever. That, that's, that's not what it's calling us to. But it is calling us to say, but Christ must come first in all. And so there will be joys and there will be blessings. There will be difficulties and there will be sufferings. But in all these things, Jesus Christ has to remain first. That's what we're called to. So what I want us to do is I want us to go to the Lord in a time of prayer and consider the cost. Consider the compromises that come into the Christian life. Consider the ways that all of us need to reassess and say, there are things that I have allowed to be preeminent in my life that shouldn't be. There are things that I have done to dilute my discipleship, and because of that, I am less useful for the kingdom of God. Perhaps not useful at all for the kingdom of God. I don't know what that is in your life. Each of us has to ask those, those questions. Each of us has to count the cost on a regular basis, because this is, this is not just something we do at the beginning of our walk. It's something we do throughout our walk. 
and to continue to remember that Jesus Christ every day is calling us to total devotion and that he would be preeminent in everything that we do. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, uh, and and then uh, Cheeto and Amy are going to come back up and lead us uh, in worship. Father God, as we as we contemplate um, the calling and the cost of discipleship, God, we we want to be um, we want to be like Paul. We want to be people who, on the day that we stand before you, that we will hear, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." We want to hear that we have fought the good fight, that we have finished the race, that we have kept the faith, God. It is the reality that we fall and stumble every single day. God, that we are, God, the old man has so many pulls on our hearts. God, that we are drawn back in to to the desires of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes. God, a, a desire for the things of the world. God, it is easy for us to, because you are so gracious and because you are so kind, God, it is easy for us to put you on the back burner and to focus our attention in other places. But God, we don't want to live that way. We don't want to be people who um, you are a second thought to us. God, we want you to be um, continually before us. God, we are called to be your followers, which means you are out front and our eyes are on you and we are following behind you. God, help us to do that faithfully. Help us to put you in the front. God, to make no demands as we follow. God, and to count the cost in everything. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Yeah.
see you. Glad you're here this uh, this evening. Um, let me remind you of, or, or make you aware of one prayer request and, and then give you an update on the other. So a couple weeks ago, I asked you to pray for uh, Josh Livingston. His uh, his family is from the mother church. Josh is still in the hospital um, uh, dealing with COVID. Um, this week, they went in into tracheotomy um, to try to, what they're hoping is to put him in a little more comfortable position to where they can bring him out of sedation and, and try to get him off the ventilator. Um, as of right now, my understanding is from the update is that things are kind of the same. Okay. And so he's gotten a little bit better over the last few um, days, but, but right now they were hoping that the tracheotomy would, pro- would kind of move him forward a good bit. And, and right now we seem to just kind of be staying the same. So continue to pray for him. Um, uh, he, he leads uh, children's ministry over First Baptist Alcoa. His his family, his mother and father, still go to the mother church, um, and so just a dear family, uh, a sweet guy. Um, if you came to Tim and Janessa's wedding, um, he was the DJ there that night, um, and so you may not have even noticed or recognized him, but you've probably seen him if you came to their wedding. So continue to pray for Josh. Also, um, be in prayer for Leanne. Um, Leanne had a stroke um, this last week, and she is currently at at Blunt Memorial. She's going to be looking like maybe transitioning and having to do some rehab and some different things like that. But but just be in prayer for her. I went and saw her earlier today, and and she was talkative and and coherent and and pretty good spirits. She seemed like or whatever. But it's going to be a process and something that she has dealt with in the past, and probably is going to continue to deal with some in the future. And so just be prayer for for all the things that that um, fall around that. All right. Again, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.